subject of dispensationalism, his journey out of it, he said to be sure and get that right and not announce him as coming to speak as a dispensationalist, so I want to make that distinction. Sam graduated with a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary and then also a Ph.D. from the University of Texas at Dallas. He pastors the Christ Community Church in Ardmore, Oklahoma, where he's been four years. I believe he said his, uh, he'll begin his fifth year this Sunday. Sam has, uh, has authored several books. He's got an excellent book on the doctrine of election. If you'd like to know of a book that you could take and put in the hands of, of church members and, uh, and people who, uh, who could read uh, with an open mind, uh, Sam has handled the matter very carefully, I believe, but, but very convincingly. And I would encourage you to look into that. It's on our uh, part of the book table out there. And he's authored some other books there, too, that, are, uh, that he's waiting on to be published now. And one of the books, uh, it was one of the first ones he wrote, the first one I came into contact with, uh, on the part of the blurb uh, introducing the book, the individual said, Something of the Spirit of Jonathan Edwards lives in Sam's storm, and I think that's a pretty interesting description of him and the time that I've had to get to know him. So Sam, come and share with us. We will listen to you gladly. Thank you, Bill. <clears throat> I don't know about the rest of you, but I am glad that Bill took the time to explain the significance of the front of this hymn book. I've been coming here the last two years wondering, are these people Masons or what? And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to know that uh, the purpose of, of that, that's very helpful. I also, I also uh, sympathize with Bill. If you were here yesterday, you know that uh, his title was listed as a biological sketch of John Broadus, and uh, he had to clarify that. And I know what Ernie meant when he said uh, pilgrimage from dispensationalism and its dangers, and Ernie knew what Ernie meant when he wrote that title. But I began to think about it for a moment, and I can imagine one person looking at it and saying, well, pilgrimage from dispensationalism and its dangers, so there must be dangers in experiencing a pilgrimage from dispensationalism. <laughs> no, it's the dangers of dispensationalism. So you may be wondering, am I coming to talk about the dangers in experiencing a pilgrimage out of it, and therefore arguing for it, or am I talking about the dangers? Of... You're going to find out shortly, so make sure they're, they're clarified on that matter. A couple of uh, very quick introductory comments, and then I want to get directly into our subject. When I say this, uh, I want you to understand that I am not saying it to disarm any of you. I truly mean it when I say that if you're a dispensationalist, I love you in Christ. Uh, I mean that sincerely. I was introduced to and nurtured in the doctrines of grace by a dispensationalist, and I still love him dearly. He's in his own pilgrimage at the present time, but I sincerely mean that, and I hope and pray that uh, the things that I say this morning will not be taken as any kind of personal offense. If you're theologically offended by what I say, I'm delighted, because that's what I hope to do. But please, if you are personally offended, accept my apologies in advance, because that is not my intent. The second thing I want to say is that it would be impossible for me to chronicle uh, an entire pilgrimage out of dispensationalism. Uh, what I want to do this morning is to share with you what was, for me, the first and the most important step or phase in that pilgrimage. And finally, uh, I can't describe all the dangers of dispensationalism. That would take uh, many, many days and many hours. I can recommend to you what I think is perhaps the best book on that subject by Vern Poitras, Understanding Dispensationalists, published by Zondervan. Uh, but what I hope to do is to share with you what, in my opinion, is the single greatest threat that dispensationalism poses. And as it turns out, uh, that threat or that particular doctrinal truth, or in this case error, is precisely the same with the first step that I took 
uh, that I'm going to share with you this morning. Now, having said that, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. I want to read this passage and then have a brief word of prayer and then we will begin. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 2 through 6. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask your blessing upon this hour. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would break us before your word. That we would submit to its authority. And that we would see in our Lord Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the promises of the Father that he might be exalted and magnified in all things, for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. The time is the first century A.D. The place is Palestine, and you are a Jew. For as long as you can remember, you have lived in prayerful expectation of the coming of Messiah and that kingdom of God which the Old Testament prophesied would come with him. Perhaps you can still vividly remember uh, your grandfather or your grandmother talking about the past glories of Abraham and the future glories of Israel. And then suddenly you receive word that a prophet of God named John is baptizing people in the waters of the River Jordan and proclaiming that this very kingdom and its king have arrived. You hurriedly rushed down to the banks of the Jordan just in time to hear these ominous words. I baptize you with water unto repentance, but one is coming after me who is mightier than I. And I, I am not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor, and he will gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With renewed hope, you patiently wait to see and hear this coming one of whom John has just spoken. But when he arrives, he doesn't appear or act or speak anything like you had expected. If you're an average Jew in that day and time, you've probably lived most of your life in economic poverty. And you remember reading in the Old Testament of the the glorious days that God promised in which his people would live in prosperity, and yet you hear this carpenter from Nazareth talk about laying up treasures not on earth but in heaven, and suddenly this cloud of perplexity begins to descend around you. You probably have experienced abuse by your Roman oppressors and persecution. You've never known what having a political voice means, and yet this man from Nazareth who preaches speaks about a blessing upon those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He says nothing and does nothing to bring about the judgment of the enemies of God. Your mind is filled with the imagery of Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 in which uh, one like the Son of Man is portrayed coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom a dominion that is everlasting and is glorious and majestic that expels the enemies of God and purges the earth of unrighteousness. And yet, when this man, who claims to be king, comes, it isn't on the clouds of heaven in glory, it is in humility on the back of a donkey. And suddenly that cloud of perplexity has enveloped you, and perhaps it is at this time that you return to your home or your village distressed and doubting. If he is the king, where is the glory of the kingdom? Where is the grandeur? Where is the greatness? Where is the majesty 
that the Old Testament things that were prophesied would come when Messiah did. I suppose that perhaps no one in that day felt more confused and perplexed by what was happening, or better yet, by what was not happening, than did John the Baptist. No individual in the ancient world was ever born with more fanfare and more expectations of greatness, aside from Jesus, of course, than was John the Baptist. You know the events surrounding his birth, uh, the appearance of the angel to Zacharias, his father, uh, the declaration to uh, Elizabeth, how she would uh, bear a child, though she was barren, all of the events surrounding uh, what he would do, the prophecy that came from Zacharias concerning the, how he would prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, we are told that John then left, apparently early in life, and went into the desert. Uh, many believed uh, that he lived near Qumran, uh, just northwest of the Dead Sea. We don't know what John did during those years. I have to believe, though, and I think it's reasonable to conclude that he spent a great deal of his time uh, studying the Old Testament, perhaps in Malachi, chapters 3 and 4, uh, learning of his role in God's redemptive program. I can imagine that the anticipation that must have been building up within him over these years was incredible. The patience the man must have experienced during those years of preparation. Finally, God's call came. The green light was given. He makes his way to the Jordan River and begins proclaiming the imminent revelation of the judgment of God, the destruction of his enemies, the fact that one is coming who has his winnowing fork in his hand and who will burn up the calf of pharisaical hypocrisy with unquenchable fire, and so on. You can imagine, can you not, that John himself, good Baptist though he was, must have been confused and perplexed by what he saw. And imagine how that perplexity must have intensified when in the fulfillment of his ministry he was arrested, having denounced the immorality of Herod's Antipas and thrown into the prison at the fortress of Machaerus just east of the Dead Sea. What must have gone on in John's mind? His rugged determination, his confidence in the Old Testament prophecies of God's purpose now gave way, I think, to some degree of disappointment and even some nagging doubt. Where was God? Where was his kingdom? Is this the Messiah? Maybe he began to say to himself, I wonder, maybe this isn't the coming one of whom the Old Testament spoke. Maybe I just thought I heard a voice from heaven. Perhaps it was just coincidence that that dove descended upon him when he was baptized by me in the Jordan. After all, if he were the Messiah, he'd be doing messianic deeds, wouldn't he? I wouldn't be in prison. The enemies of God who have arrested me would be destroyed, right? Well, John did evidently the only thing he knew to do. He called his disciples. He sent them to Jesus with a question. Are you the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? Our Lord's answer, as you know, is taken from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61 and verse 1. But what is interesting here is not so much what Jesus does say, as what he does not say. He doesn't say, oh, sorry guys, just go back and tell John that we got a little bit delayed, Sermon on the Mount took longer than I expected, I'll be right there leading an army of God's faithful, we'll have him out in a jiffy and we'll hang Herod from an old oak tree. That's not what he says. He says, go back and tell John, yes, the messianic salvation in fulfillment of the Old Testament has come, but in an unexpected form. John had good reason to be perplexed. His expectation of what God was going to do when the kingdom came simply wasn't appearing before his eyes. But Jesus said, it has come in me. The deaf are receiving their hearing back, and the blind are getting their sight, and the lame are walking, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Yes, there is reason to stumble because the fulfillment is coming in unexpected terms, and that is why Jesus pronounces a beatitude upon those who are not offended by the form of the fulfillment that has come in his person 
and in his work. Now, to the point. Why did John begin to doubt? Why was it that this great man of God began to falter in his confidence concerning the identity of Jesus as Messiah? Dear friend, I believe John was distressed, and I believe John began to doubt because he was thinking like a dispensationalist. John's fundamental error in the first century is identical with the fundamental error of most dispensationalists in the 20th century. John mistakenly believed that when Messiah came, it was for the purpose of ushering in the glorious consummation of God's apocalyptic kingdom in all of its power and all of its majesty and all of its glory. John failed to understand what Jesus himself would later call the mystery of the kingdom of God. And in my opinion, and in my own pilgrimage and experience, it was when I came to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God and what Jesus did intend to do and offer at his first advent that dispensationalism suddenly became for me what I now understand it to be, a sincere but sincerely mistaken interpretation of God's word. Now, what does the dispensationalist believe about the character and coming of God's kingdom? Well, I, I don't want to be unfair to them in speaking so briefly, but let me try and summarize, in essence, what they argue for. In various forms, the dispensationalists insist that, whether to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David, that God covenanted with Israel to establish an earthly, geographical, socio-political, as well as spiritual reign on this earth, in which Israel as a nation would prosper agriculturally and politically and would exercise a supremacy among the nations of the earth. This spiritual as well as socio-political supremacy was the focus of Israel's hope for centuries. It's what she longed to see come to pass. This, says the dispensationalist, was what God offered to Israel through the message and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. But, as you know, and of course the dispensationalist in this respect is accurate, the nation as a whole rejected and repudiated the Lord Jesus Christ, compelling God in a certain sense, making it necessary for him, so they argue, to postpone that establishment of that phase of the kingdom until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how the dispensationalist interprets the ministry and message of Jesus, and I would contend that at least for a while that is why John the Baptist was beginning to have his doubts as he languished in that filthy, rat-infested prison. So what then did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? What is its character? When was it to have come, if at all? Can there be any doubt that the primary focus of our Lord's ministry and message was the kingdom of God? I have a couple of dozen passages I could read to you of time allowed in which Jesus, as well as John the Baptist, made clear that that was the focus of his ministry. John chapter, or Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, John comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 17 of Matthew, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, Jesus was going about in all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I could give you uh, scores of texts to that effect. The focus of his ministry was the coming of God's kingdom. <coughs> so what constituted the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed? Was it the visible conquest of God's enemy? The imminent display of wrath and judgment that would separate the good from the righteous and the wicked from the evil, the exaltation of Israel over Rome? the purging of the land of unrighteousness, the prosperity of the people within some geographical domain. Is that what Jesus meant when he came proclaiming that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven was at hand? No. It was not God's purpose to bring in that phase of the kingdom then, and it was therefore no part of our Lord's message or ministry to offer it to Israel. What then did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? In what sense had it come with him? Well, I do believe, as Jesus makes clear to John in chapter 11 when he sent back word through his disciples, 
that the fulfillment of the Old Testament with its, all of its attendant blessings was in fact present in his person, in his ministry, in the miracles that he performed, in the word that he proclaimed, in the forgiveness that he brought to human lives. The fulfillment, however, and this is where John tripped up, and where so many other Jews in that day, and so many dispensationalists do as well. The fulfillment was not taking place along expected lines. Fulfillment was taking place, but without the eschatological consummation that the Jews had come to expect. What Jesus is telling us is that in advance of the glorious, apocalyptic, final manifestation of God's judgment against the nations, his deliverance and exaltation of his people, in advance of that final form of the kingdom, it has already come in secret, oftentimes in a hidden way, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Our Lord is saying, in effect, as he does all through the Gospels, that the kingdom of God is both a present reign in righteousness and a future realm over which that reign will be manifested. Very quickly, let's look at three texts in Matthew that I think illustrate this. Look, if you would, once again at chapter 11 of Matthew. Chapter 11, beginning with verse 7. A very controversial passage. Immediately following this uh, little encounter with John's disciples, we read, and as these were going away, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now notice this twelfth verse. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, I hope I don't have to go into detail to demonstrate to you that the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. Matthew uses heaven instead of God, although he does use God in chapter 19, by the way. But he uses it predominantly but out of deference to his Jewish audience, who would prefer not to hear the name of God mentioned. Very controversial passage. The NIV, I believe, renders this somewhat better than the New American Standard. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, the first verb in this sentence, I think, is rather clear. I think he is saying that the kingdom, from the time of John, has been making its way powerfully into the world, revealed in the miracles that Jesus performed, revealed in the forgiveness of sins of that paralytic in Matthew 9, revealed in its healing of those who were diseased, delivering the demonized, his uh, authority over nature, the word that he spoke, the kingdom in an altogether unique and powerful way had invaded human history in the person of Jesus. And he is saying that it has been forcefully making its way and advancing since John. The second half of that verse, however, has been subject to great interpretation. I'm not going to give you all the options. I think what he's saying here is that violent or rapacious men, like the Pharisees, like the Zealots, like Herod, like the Jewish antagonists in general, that violent men have been trying to exploit and plunder that kingdom as it has made its way into this world. Now, what is Jesus saying? I think he is saying this, that simultaneous with the kingdom's advance, simultaneous with the breaking in of God's present reign in righteousness and in salvation in the person of Jesus, there have come the attacks of violent and wicked men. Now, there's a very important truth there that John simply could not comprehend, at least at this point in his life, and that dispensationalists can't comprehend. And it is that the kingdom has come, it is advancing in fulfillment of the Old Testament, but not so as to destroy all opposition. It has come, but not so as to effect the final eschatological judgment on evil and the enemies of God. That's what John couldn't grasp. His understanding of the coming of the kingdom was God's going to destroy these wicked Gentiles. 
He's going to separate the good from the evil. The age to come is going to be here, and Israel will reign in supremacy. Jesus says the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and yet there are still evil men who try to exploit it and plunder it and take it by force. Another passage along this line. Look, if you would, one page over, chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, a very familiar passage to you. Verses 22 through 29, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. He is accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Notice, if you would, he concludes in verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, the elements involved in the uh, illustration of the strong man in verse 29, I think, are familiar to you. Satan is the strong man. His palace or home is this present evil age. His goods or property referred to are men and women under his influence. Jesus is saying, with my coming, someone stronger has arrived. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. It has invaded the kingdom of Satan. It, the devil's power has been broken. George Ladd, I think, put it best when he said, before the eschatological conquest of God's kingdom over evil and the destruction of Satan, the kingdom of God has invaded the realm of Satan to deal him a preliminary but decisive defeat. You see, the Jew thought that the destruction of Satan and of evil would come only at the consummation of the age with the finality of God's kingdom reign. Jesus says, in advance of that ultimate defeat of the devil, the kingdom has already brought a decisive defeat. You see, one of the problems we have in understanding this, one of the problems that uh, the Jews of the first century had, is that when we think of the word kingdom, what comes to mind? If I say the kingdom of, uh, of England or of Britain, Many people think immediately of what? Well, they think of this, this geographical, uh, territorial realm with boundaries, this earthly, spatial, um, topographical area over which Elizabeth or whoever else uh, happens to be the queen or the king at that time ruled. That was not the primary emphasis of the word kingdom in our Lord's ministry. You see, the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and ushered in was not a static area. It was a dynamic authority. It wasn't so much a realm, it was a reign. Not a domain, but rather a dominion. Not a place, but a power. Not a land, but lordship. Now again, the future consummation of God's kingdom will involve a realm, the whole earth over which that reign will be manifested. It will involve a land over which his lordship will be exercised. What that land will be depends on your millennial view. I happen to think it will be the land of the new earth. But there will be a realm. There will be an area in which God's authority will be uniquely displayed. But that is for the future consummation. It was never God's intent to usher that in in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third passage is an entire chapter, and I can't read it, obviously, but it is perhaps the most important chapter of all in this respect. Matthew 13. There Jesus, in a series of seven parables, describes what he calls the mystery of the kingdom. What is the mystery of the kingdom? It's what John didn't understand. It's what even his disciples couldn't fully fathom, and that's why Jesus says, Blessed are you, said, the prophets and wise men of the Old Testament long to understand what I'm teaching you now. To you it has been granted to understand what the mystery of the kingdom is. What is it? That God has a kingdom? No. No mystery. That's clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Well, was it that God's kingdom was going to come? No, that's no mystery. Well, was it that God's kingdom would come in glorious power? That was no mystery. All the Jews understood that. The new truth, the mystery that is now given by revelation through our Lord Jesus Christ is that the kingdom which is to come in apocalyptic power, as Daniel chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 describes, has already invaded human history in the person of Jesus, bringing life and forgiveness and healing and blessing and fellowship and communion and love. That's not the kind of kingdom they wanted. It's not the kind of king that they wanted. In fact, in John chapter 6, you may recall in verse 15, after Jesus had performed the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, he understood that the people wanted to come and make him king. 
have him lead a great and mighty army that would overthrow Rome and deliver Israel. And he immediately withdrew because that is not the nature of the kingdom that he was offering. You see, what caught the Jews and John the Baptist by surprise was that the kingdom was to come in two phases, two stages corresponding to the two comings of Messiah. They stumbled and were offended by this, that they were looking in the for or they were seeking in the first coming of Messiah, but God only... Well, the parable of the soils isn't so much about the nature of man and how the gospel is received, although there is truth of that. The primary point of the parable of the soils is this. Contrary to what you have expected, Jesus says, the kingdom isn't like a general riding a white horse, commanding troops and subjecting his enemies. The kingdom of God is like a farmer sowing seeds. So the coming of the kingdom in my person is like going out into a field and, and, and casting seed here and there. and It gets various responses. But notwithstanding satanic opposition in which it is snatched up from the uh, rocky ground and notwithstanding the, the failure of that word to bring life to all who hear it because some the thorns rise up and choke it out and the worries and the persecutions of this world, in God's children, in his elect, the kingdom takes root and it bears fruit. Jesus says there is going to come a final harvest. There will come a day in which that fruit will finally be manifested. But that's not the intent of the coming of the kingdom at this time. What about the wheat and the tares? The principal point of the wheat and the tares is that the kingdom has come, but without doing what John the Baptist thought it was going to do, bringing about a final absolute separation of the good from the wicked. Jesus says the kingdom is here, but society is not uprooted as the Jews anticipated. The kingdom is present as God intended, but there's still a mixture of good and evil. The harvest will come. Make no mistake about that, Jesus says. There's going to be a harvest. But wait until the end of the age when the angels of God are sent forth and they will separate the wheat from the tares. What about the mustard seed? You see, the burning question that the disciples were asking was this. How can God's kingdom, his marvelous, majestic, glorious, sovereign reign, be present in such a ragtag little band of disciples such as we? Jesus looked more like a deluded dreamer than a king of a kingdom. How can the kingdom of God, Yahweh, be present in this person who speaks in humility and of forgiveness and of loving your enemies? I don't want to love them. I don't want to kill them. How can the kingdom be present? in that kind of individual, in that kind of message. And Jesus says, let's understand the kingdom of God in its beginning is like that tiny little mustard seed, but don't worry, one day it will be a large tree in which the birds of the air come and make their nest. But first the tiny seed, then the large tree. The Jews wanted the large tree right then, and that's what they expected. That's why they were so confused and so distressed. What about the leaven? The most disputed of all parables is the shortest one. I'm not going to get into the questions about how this relates to the millennial issue, if it's a defense of post-millennialism or premillennialism. I don't believe leaven here is a symbol of evil, and I think I can demonstrate that if we had the time. I think what Jesus is saying is, he's saying you have expected in a, uh, that uh, when the kingdom came, that evil society would just suddenly disappear by the power of God. He said, no, that's not true. He said, the kingdom of God is like, well, let me tell you, it's like when I was growing up in my home and I used to watch Mary, my mother, cook in the kitchen. It's always fascinated, Jesus said, how she used to take a, a little piece of sourdough that had fermented from a previous baking and take and put that into uh, these pecks of meal. And you know, when you looked at it, that little piece of leaven was just engulfed and disappeared in that lump of dough, and it's like nothing happened. But eventually... That little leaven permeated and transformed the entire piece of dough. He said, that's what the coming of the kingdom is like. Right now, just a little piece of leaven. It comes in a kind of a hidden way. It's secretly there. You don't see it. It's not rooting out all opposition. Society still is corrupt. There's heinous sin and there's uh, a perversity. But just as that little piece of leaven begins to permeate the dough, so the presence of God's kingdom begins to expand and develop and influence society. Now, how you apply that to your eschatological view is up to you. But that is the point Jesus is making. The hidden treasure, the costly pearl. Once again, although the Jews certainly believed the kingdom was of value, few consider what Jesus was doing to be of value. 
Our Lord is saying there that notwithstanding the superficial evaluation of my kingdom, notwithstanding what you can see with the naked eye, I tell you the kingdom is like the most precious of pearls that you ought to be willing to give all you have to purchase. It's like a hidden treasure that you find and you go buy the whole field so you can have it. In other words, the kingdom is so glorious and so marvelous, even in its mystery hidden form, even in the fact that it doesn't root out all opposition, that you ought to be willing to sacrifice all to secure it and to enter into its blessings. The dragnet that concludes Matthew 13 brings the same message as the wheat and the tares. Whereas both good and bad fish are mingled together in this present age, a day is coming when the angels will be dispensed and they will separate the two. So, did Jesus offer to Israel an earthly Davidic kingdom only then to postpone its establishment until the end of the age? No, nothing was postponed. The fullness of the promised kingdom, that is, Christ's earthly visible reign in which he would conquer all enemies, was not God's purpose in the first century. That is reserved for the consummation. It was God's purpose, on the other hand, to prepare for himself through the person work of Jesus, a people who in the present day will submit to his sovereign reign. That is what it is to enter into the kingdom of God in this present age. It's to submit to the sovereign yoke of the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friend, that is the kingdom Jesus brought. And I'm not even sure I like the word offered, because he didn't come offering himself as king, he came as king. But that is the kingdom that came, that kingdom was by God's grace accepted in the group of his disciples, and it was fulfilled, though not consummated. Therefore, just as the Messiahship of Jesus involved two phases, a coming in humility to save and also a coming in judgment, so also there is two phases in the coming of God's kingdom, the present reign of righteousness and salvation and the future realm when the powers of the kingdom shall be manifested in visible, irresistible power and glory. Let me give you uh, one other illustration of this that I think strikes especially home with dispensationalists. Perhaps no passage in the Word of God summarizes and, and, and captures uh, their belief and their view than does the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And let me just very quickly read to you just a couple of verses about this covenant promise and then say something about how it has come in the person of Jesus. 2 Samuel 7 we read, for example, when your days are complete, this is verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, your throne shall be established forever. You read that and you can understand, and also in subsequent texts in the Old Testament, how the Jew came to identify the earthly Davidic dynasty was the rule of God upon the earth. They were synonymous in his thinking. And when Gabriel came and announced to the Virgin Mary the impending conception and birth of her son, you remember what he said? Quote, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now listen to this. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. How could Gabriel have been any more explicit? That covenant promise given in 2 Samuel 7, reiterated through the Old Testament, is fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't the fulfillment of this covenant promise to be postponed until the end of the age? <coughs> to be realized in a, in a post-Parousia thousand-year reign? Or did Jesus, on the basis of his death and subsequent to his resurrection, ascend to the exalted throne of David in the heavenly Jerusalem, from which he even now rules as Davidic king? Well, it seems to me that the latter is surely the case. Look very quickly, if you would, at uh, Acts chapter 13. I want to just look at a couple of passages very quickly. Acts chapter 13. At the city in Antioch, Paul surveys the course of God's mighty acts in redemptive history, from the Exodus to the establishment of the Davidic monarchy. He says, from the offspring of this man David, 
According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, verse 23. And it is in Him that we are to see the true fulfillment of the promises made to David. Look, beginning with verse 32 of Acts 13. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. In what way? In that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, the promise to David, the Davidic covenant, the promise of an heir who would rule on a throne of an everlasting kingdom. When was that fulfilled, Paul says? It's been fulfilled and is being fulfilled when God raised his son from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly Jerusalem. Therefore he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Look back at Acts chapter 2 very quickly. At Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he quotes from the 16th psalm, declares that it can't be a reference to David himself in person. He says, Brethren, and here I begin reading with verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, what does that say to you? 2 Samuel 7. God had promised going to seat one of David's descendants upon the throne to rule an everlasting kingdom. How did he do that? He looked ahead and spoke of what? The second coming of Jesus Christ? No. The resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. seems to me the message of Peter and Paul is clear, that the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God is the fulfillment of the old covenant promise that a descendant of David would reign as the anointed one of Israel. Fulfilled, but yet still to be consummated. Someone says, but wait a minute, isn't that supposed to be literally fulfilled? You bet. Christ is literally the descendant of David. He sits literally on David's throne at the exalted right hand of the Father. He reigns literally in Jerusalem right now. Read in Hebrews chapter 12, you and I, dear friend, have come to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. We are its citizens. There is a day when that new Jerusalem is going to descend to the earth, but it's already here, and Jesus reigns from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem over the nations right now. Someone says, but isn't that supposed to be an earthly fulfillment? You bet it is, and it's going to be. At the consummation. When Christ returns at the end of the age, his Davidic rule, heretofore a uniquely heavenly one, shall visibly extend to the ends of the earth. The new earth, in my opinion, that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So it seems to me then very clearly from just these few passages, that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ that he promised that has come I lost my notes there I put them over here has been fulfilled and yet not consummated now let me in the time that I have in these few minutes I want to address myself in light of what I've said to three very important um, debates that occur between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists what is it what are the implications of all this? If what I have said about the coming of the kingdom is true, if it has been fulfilled but not consummated, if the mystery of the kingdom is that in advance of its glorious apocalyptic display at the end of the age, it's already broken in in the person of Jesus and is here now in terms of present reign, what does that mean for, first of all, the identity of the people of God? It seems to me very clear that the nation of Israel as a whole did in fact reject and repudiate Jesus. There can be no mistake about that. That is what Paul describes in Romans 11 by the breaking off of the natural branches. But dear friend, a substantial group of Israelites didn't repudiate Jesus. We must always remember 
that from the very beginning of God's purposes in Genesis, even unto Revelation, God's promised salvation, his covenant, everything that he does, is for the remnant. You see, in our Lord's disciples, we see the truth, the theology of the remnant in its preeminent form. Within the unbelieving nation of Israel as a whole, there is always the believing remnant. This is what Paul meant in Romans 9, 6 when he said, they are not all of Israel who are Israel. Just because you have Abraham's blood flowing in your veins doesn't mean that you're an heir of the promise. You've got to have his faith in your heart. So you see, the believing remnant, the disciples, and that group of men and women who, by God's grace, submitted to his sovereign lordship, received the kingdom as it came, entered into its blessings, and became the nucleus of the new people of God, the church. This believing remnant, in my opinion, wherever it may appear, however large or small it may be, constitutes the true people of God. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Don't be afraid, men. Little flock, he called them, for it has pleased the Father to give you the kingdom. That's what Jesus meant in John 10, 16, when he said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, meaning Gentiles. And I'm going to bring them in, and there's going to be one shepherd in how many folds? How many flocks? One flock. You see, Jesus saw the realization of Israel's true destiny in the circle of his disciples. Now, I don't think they're to be thought of as a new Israel. They're just the true Israel. And when Jesus prophesied in Matthew 16 of the building of the church, it's not to be thought of as a distinct and separate creation cut off from God's true people of the Old Covenant, but it's simply the continuation and the maturing of the believing remnant of Israel who were located in those twelve men. So I would argue that the fellowship of the church doesn't stand in opposition to, but in direct continuity with Old Testament Israel. That's why we can call the church the true Israel of God. It's interesting, just kind of an aside here. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament, especially uh, Ephesians 2, the New Testament doesn't talk about Israel becoming the church or Israelites being brought into the church. It talks about believing Gentiles being brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We as unnatural branches have been grafted into the true people of God who are represented by that believing remnant who received the kingdom when Jesus came at his first advent. So many texts that I could uh, point you to in this respect. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 16 and verse 23 through 29. There Paul says clearly, in quoting Genesis 12 and 15, that it was to Abraham and his seed that the promise was given. Promise of what? The promise of a land, the promise of dominion and rule, the promise of blessing and prosperity forever. And he said, and if you belong, if you are, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise given in the Old Testament. Dear friend, let me tell you something. If anybody has a claim to the land of Palestine today, it's you and me. <laughs> we are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. But I've got to tell you, I'm not satisfied with Palestine. I want the whole earth. And I've got it. Read Romans chapter 4. Abraham, heir of the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, for example, verses 4 through 10. You know that passage in which uh, the statement uh, or the description of the nation Israel on Sinai in which God says to them through covenant, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That describes you and me. The very titles, the very blessings, the very honors, the very privileges that were exclusively and sometimes pridefully and arrogantly held by the nation Israel are now applied to the church. Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13 describes the new covenant. Someone says, now wait a minute, Sam, that says to the house of Israel and Judah, God's going to institute a new covenant. Well, let me ask you, have you ever wondered who was in the upper room when Jesus instituted the new covenant? One a Gentile among them. All Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The remnant of, of Israel and Judah were the ones with whom Jesus initially instituted the new covenant. They were the nucleus of the emerging church into which we were grafted as unnatural branches and thus participants in that covenant. Philippians chapter 3, one of the glories of Israel was what? We have the circumcision. 
Paul says, I'll tell you who is the circumcision. It's believers, whether Gentile or Jew, who worship God in spirit and truth. You ethnic Jews who claim that privilege, you're dogs, you're, you're mutilators of the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, James chapter 1, verse 1, we find the term, the dispersion, a reference used, of course, of the nation Israel. Applied to what? Applied to the church of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Revelation 3, 9. Turn very quickly to Revelation 3, 9. I do want you to see this, if you've never noticed this passage. What is a Jew, anyway? I mean, if the new covenant was established with the house of Israel and Judah, what is a Jew? Well, we're told in Revelation 3, 9, there we're told, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Have you ever wondered about that statement? Here are people who say they're Jews, but they're not. Well, why would they say they're Jews? Are, are these Gentiles who are saying that, well, I've got a genealogy, I can show you I've descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, these are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Really Jews in that sense. But Jesus says, you're not really Jews. See what a real Jew is. It's not somebody who has the blood of Abraham in his veins. It's the one who has the faith of Abraham in his heart. It's not the one who's got the circumcision in his flesh, but has got the circumcision in his heart. That's what Romans 2, 28-29 tells us. We are... Jews in the truest sense of that term. As Jesus says here, people who say they're Jews, and ethnically they were, but Jesus says they're not really Jews. Many other texts that could indicate and demonstrate the implications of the this understanding of the kingdom of God and how it impacts our understanding of who God's people really are and whether he has two separate purposes for Israel and the church. Very quickly. Um, two other implications. As you know, there are many who argue and contend that God, at some day in the future, is going to commission, endorse, approve, and support the rebuilding of a physical structure in Jerusalem on the location of the Dome of the Rock called the Temple, and that he intends, at some time in the future, actually once again to descend in his Shekinah glory and take up residence in that physical man-made structure. Please don't be too offended by this, but dear friend, that is an abominable heresy. Now, I don't know whether the Jewish people will ever rebuild that temple. They may. They may start tomorrow. They may blow up the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar at the Dome of the Rock. It may be gone. They may rebuild that temple. But if they do, it will rise as a stench in the nostrils of God. You know why? God's already building his temple. He's been building his temple since Jesus came. Look quickly, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are told, beginning in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, believing Gentiles, are fellow citizens with the saints, are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now notice these last two verses. In whom the whole building... God interested in building a building? Yeah, he is. But notice its nature. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit, dear friend. You are God's temple, and you're the only building he ever wants to dwell in. God doesn't want to live in a structure made out of stone and wood. He wants to live in your heart. And you individually and the local church corporately are the temple of God. The same truth is expressed, let me just read it to you, back in 1 Peter chapter 2. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If God is building us as his temple in which he will dwell, that we might be a holy priesthood, a spiritual house to offer up sacrifices through Christ, are you going to stand there and tell me that he's going to endorse the building of a physical structure and revert back to the beggarly elements of the old covenant? First. 
Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, tell us, dear friend, we are God's temple, and He dwells in us. And whether or not a structure is ever built in Jerusalem, the only thing God's going to dwell in are the hearts of believing men and women. The last implication, and with this I close, we've seen that the proper understanding of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and His person and work has radical consequences for our understanding of the people of God, radical consequences for our understanding of what God may or may not do in the future, the temple, and radical consequences for our understanding of the work of Christ the King Himself. And let me just quote to you very quickly one statement by one dispensationalist whose name you would recognize immediately if I, there it is, if I would give it to you, about what he believes concerning the future. Because he believes that this uh, earthly, Davidic, theocratic, uh, geographical, territorial realm that Jesus offered was rejected and postponed, this is what he believes will come when Christ does at the second advent. In the millennial system, he says, we find the worship centers in an altar on which blood is sprinkled and on which are offered burnt offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings. There is the reinstitution of a Levitical order in that the sons of Zadok are set aside for a priestly ministry. The meal offering is incorporated in the ritual. There are prescribed rituals of cleansing for the altar, for the Levites who minister, for the sanctuary. There will be the observance of new moon and Sabbath days. Morning sacrifices will be offered daily. Perpetual inheritances will be recognized. The Passover feast will be observed again. Oh, Christ is our Passover. Oh, goodness. The Feast of Tabernacles becomes an annual event. The year of Jubilee is observed. There is a similarity in the regulations given to govern the manner of life, the dress, the sustenance of the priestly order. He says, and this is the concluding statement, it can thus be seen that the form of worship in the millennium will bear a strong similarity to the old Aaronic order. Say something, dear friend. Uh, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, you have to realize how horribly misguided and that statement is. We are told in 1 Corinthians that we are to observe the elements of the Lord's Supper until he comes. Why? Well, who wants the symbols when you've got the substance? I love the elements of the Lord's table, but when not, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is standing in front of me, dear friend, whether in a millennium or the new earth, I don't want a little piece of bread and a couple of grape juice. I want Christ there. And yet we are being told that notwithstanding what he did, fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifices, fulfilling the feast, fulfilling all of the Levitical ritual, all of its symbolism, all of its typology, that when Jesus comes back, he wants to go back to the typical. We have the antitypical fulfillment. Why do we want the beggarly elements, the shadows? You see, when you misunderstand the fulfillment of all these things in the king at his first coming, as Jesus intended, you won't be continually projecting into a future age those things which in Christ have already been consummated and fulfilled. In closing, what about old John back in that prison? We left him in doubt and despair and in distress. We aren't told what happened. We just know he lost his head. And you know, I think that tells me something about his theology. I think John... I think John understood when Jesus sent his disciples back with that explanation. And I think John became a recipient of the Beatitude. I don't believe he stumbled over Jesus. I think he sat down and reflected more on what Jesus was saying and doing and said, you know, he's right. The fulfillment has come in Jesus, but in an unexpected form. And the consummation that I wanted to see now is reserved for the end of the age. The reason I think that John must have come to that conclusion is that he persisted in his denunciation of Herod in fulfillment of God's call on his life, and as a result, was killed. I'm speculating. I don't know what went on in John's head, but I have to believe that John died a non-dispensationalist. <laughs> now, hear me well. Sometimes can tend to speak lightly of this particular view, and as I said, if you're personally offended, please accept my apologies. That was not my intent. 
theological offense I intend to give because I think it is a mistake in interpreting the Word of God that has profound implications in so many areas. And may God strengthen us all in common bond and fellowship, whether dispensationalist or not, to preach, to proclaim, and to bear witness to the present reign of God's kingdom and to look with loving, hopeful expectation for its consummation at his return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. And Father, our eyes are set upon the skies that we might one day look upon his face and behold the substance of which all the shadows were merely a prefigurement that we might see in the Savior the consummate fulfillment of all of the blessings that you have promised. Father, we thank you for that hope. Purify our lives with it. We ask it in Christ's name.